0: a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle,
1: a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
2: Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a caravan 10-foot-by-10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com.
1: Welcome to Real GM Radio, I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this NBA Finals Preview Edition of the podcast. Was really humbled and happy that we got so much of a response from potential guests for this podcast that I ended up having to split into two, it was over two hours of content, and I didn't feel comfortable releasing that as one, so it will be released in two parts that will come out at the same time. The second part, which does, this is not included, is Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders and Shams Charania of Real GM. But on this part, part one, we have Ian Levy of Hickory High, Hardwood Paroxysm, and recently 538.com. We have Jack Winter of Hardwood Paroxysm and Beckley Mason of Hoopspeak. And we're going to start out with Ian. I've been really happy with the success that he's had. He's been one of my favorites for a while. And to see him get a really regular gig on 538 covering the playoffs and write, writing about writing about the playoffs has been gratifying for me i love his work and i love to see more of it so we we'll are start, we'll start with him it's about 18 minutes and we recorded right after the spurs won and locked up the finals matchup so you'll have to read his pieces for some of the data driven stuff but i wanted to get his immediate take once we heard what the matchup was thanks so much for coming on
2: hey uh, glad to be here
1: so it's interesting how this turned out because I think we both expected a long time ago for this to be the finals matchup, but you know there were a lot of twists and turns along the way. So now we just found out last night that it's actually going to be Spurs against Heat. What was your first interpretation of how it's going to look?
2: You know, I I haven't really had time to start figuring out what it's going to look like. I mean, your your first thought as you go back to all the all the games from last year and thinking about how things that played out last year and. just sort of like the the emotional weight you know the the emotional baggage that's being brought into this series um seems you know as compelling as the individual matchups you know this is um there's just it just seems like there's so much more riding on this than uh, other finals
1: yeah and I think the other thing and hopefully having the long layoff for both teams will help with this is also the the factor of health I think that I was trying to think today, as great as they played in the second half against the Thunder, of a way that the Spurs could have a reasonable chance to win the series without Tony Parker being healthy. And he's just so important to their offense.
2: Yeah, it's hard to imagine them. Uh, I mean, they've, they've survived bits and pieces here and there, but it's hard, to, it's hard to imagine them really playing up to the level they would need to play up to without, without having him completely healthy. Uh, having the layoff for him to get back is going to be really important.
1: And at the same point, we've seen Miami in various levels of beatability without a fully healthy Wade, and I think that the combination of having the long layoff and then also, I, I feel like in some ways, as strange as this is, the return to the two-two-one-one-one format might actually help the Heat in that sense that they don't have to win three games in a row at home.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can see that you know, they they uh, they really sort of, it felt like they were building towards something in that Indiana series, and it feels like they've um, cresting to some degree. So, you know, they might be more interested in getting started than the than the Spurs are. But yeah, I think you're right, have, have, being able to bounce back and forth, I think it will be a big deal for them.
1: Have you seen any information in terms of how that affects the series in terms of the 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 one the change in format for for the final series or is it just kind of it's just kind of intuitive at this point
2: i haven't i've never seen anybody actually look at that and see what the difference is but yeah that would definitely be interesting but i you know the finals are sort of a different animal anyway just because there's more space between the games so yeah i'm i'm yeah i'm not sure
1: Yeah, and I think that you bring up a good point also with the space between the games, and it's funny because these are, in some ways, two two teams with older pieces in their core. I wouldn't say that the Spurs are necessarily an older team because of how many quality younger players they have, but... I feel like the the delays will lead to better basketball in this series, which is something I'm excited for. But also these two teams play some pretty beautiful basketball when they want to.
2: Yeah, and it's more I think it's more than just health, it's the opportunity to, you know, scheme stuff to to, to look at you know, really pour through lineups and look at matchups, watch video, um and uh you know, to, to, to come back to the table each game with something new, um, you know. So, like, we have game one Thursday, and then there's two days off before game two. You know, it seems like that's everybody will come out Thursday and kind of you throw some jabs and whatever, and then they get two days to kind of sit on that and read what happened in game one. And then, you know, game two, we might see something totally different. So
1: one thing that I've been thinking about is that, There were points in this series, as we saw with the starting lineup adjustments, where it felt like the Spurs couldn't keep Splitter and Duncan together on the floor against the Thunder. And I think it'll be interesting to see if Miami can credibly do that the same way, because that would obviously be a huge hinge point in terms of where this could go, maybe even four or five games in.
2: You're talking about Miami being able to force Splitter off the floor. Yeah, basically. Yeah, um... You know, the, the thing is like the Pacers starting lineup, you know, they, uh, they kept that lineup on the floor, and um, I didn't look at the numbers after Game Six, but through gra- through Game Five, the Pacers still had a huge margin when they played that starting lineup. So regardless of whether the Heat were big or small, you, you know they were able to keep West and Hibbert on the floor together, and they generally were outscoring the Heat um, pretty handily when when both of those guys were on the floor. just fell apart when they went to the bench. So I think the Spurs sort of could be stubborn, and there might be some trade-off there where they can keep splitting and Duncan on the floor and it's, and it's going to work well enough. But, you know, uh, it's funny because we think of Popovich as a stubborn kind of guy and, and, uh, and, you know, maybe he sort of is that in his personality, but, but coaching, you know, he seems like a guy who's going to make changes. And if he sees, you know, uh, marginal advantages to be had, uh, in different places, um, uh, you know, he's not going to hesitate to make a change.
1: The one I was, when I was watching the game last night, especially the second half after Parker went out with his ankle thing, the thing I was thinking about in terms of a potential finals matchup is, even though his defense has been much worse this year, I feel like we're going to see some especially close of game situations with LeBron guarding Manu instead of somebody like Tony Parker, especially if he's limited. And I'm trying to think of, in all the times that they've faced each other, any times that That matchup happened very frequently, but it's intellectually it's really interesting to me just to figure out how that would work with the two of them with LeBron on Manu.
2: Yeah, and so who do you who who would you see them playing on Parker then in that crunch time lineup?
1: Assuming they're playing Chalmers, I think that I think Chalmers can do it. I don't think you can put weight on Tony Parker. I don't right now. I I I don't I don't think that. And I think Kawhi. While I like him quite a bit. Uh I haven't seen him exert himself physically to say you know i'm going I'm gonna bully you, yeah, and I also think that a Kawhi Wade just from an emotional standpoint uh-huh. that would be really interesting because as even though Wade isn't what he was, yeah. I think as frustrating as that is, he's still kind of a force of will mm-hmm. and I think in some ways, especially because it seems like when his lower half is together, when he's not being put together by paper mache <laughs> he, he has a pretty he he kind of has the weird physical profile that I think. Wouldn't it wouldn't be perfect against Kawhi? Obviously, you'd want somebody who's longer, but mm-hmm. I think it could work for bits and pieces. But I don't know. It's there's so many strange things because the Spurs are a team that have two guys who can run their offense.
2: Yeah, so. and even you know hypothetically three, if you think about Dio uh, facilitating for the elbow. It's funny. I I feel like the the LeBron matchup, like who he who he guards in this series is going to be so much less important than it was in the Pacers series. You know, we're putting him on Stevenson or George, depending on the matchup, where he could just sort of swallow them up and then the Pacers' offense just crumbles – you know, against the Spurs, it, it's almost like it doesn't matter. If he if he's on Ginobili, then that changes how Ginobili plays, but it doesn't necessarily change how the Spurs offense functions. Um, or if he's on Parker, it, it might change how Parker plays, but it doesn't necessarily change how the Spurs offense will function because it's just sort of so versatile in so many moving parts.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think that that's a testament to just the power of the Spurs system and their coaching and everything, that they can do it in those different ways. But the guy that I was thinking about, just in the various lineups we'll see, that I'm really intrigued by in terms of his role is Danny Green. Yeah. Because his defensive ability is, is a really nice compliment to Kawhi. They're one of the few teams that have two that have two quality perimeter defenders that they can play together without a downturn on offense, Well, obviously losing Parker or Ginobili for those minutes is, but... Anyway, but his offensive game just, it seems so insanely variable, and uh, on the broadcast last night, TNT, they were talking a lot about how, you know, it's in the state of Texas and outside, but to me, it, it, it even can be beyond that. There are moments where he just looks incredible, and then he can just be completely gone at this at the next moment, and it's always surprising to me that a player that inconsistent has thrived in some ways on the Spurs.
2: Yeah, well, I, I you know, I... I would hesitate to ascribe all that inconsistency to him and his actual performance and his shooting. You know, some of it is is the sort of the opportunities that the offense creates you know like when i think of the the spurs offense i don't necessarily think of them as having sort of like a uh, a preferred outcome on a given possession or even sort of like a list of priorities it's it's uh it's sort of like flexible in what's there and so it's it's danny green gets those shots when they're there but sometimes those shots aren't there and that's not necessarily you know, that's not necessarily his fault. And and to some degree, you know, when he gets those open shots, to, to his credit, he hits those open shots. But when he gets those open shots, it's, it's not always because he's doing something that's creating those, off, those open shots. It's something else that's happening on the floor, um, the way the defense is handling Parker or Ginobili or Duncan, that's getting him those open shots. And then he takes advantage of them. And if the defense does something different, those shots might not be there for him. But You know, I I think some of that inconsistency is just sort of the nature of the sort of the flexibility of the of their offense.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think I think that also fits, you know, what we've seen from that team. Do you have an expectation? So obviously we'll see a lot of splitter and a lot of Duncan. And I'm guessing Diaz is actually a really interesting fit against the Heat. It's going to be fascinating to see how deep their rotation goes with the more interior players, and if we see some of Kawhi at the four to counteract some potentially with LeBron at the four. But I like that these two teams have enough guys that they trust. That they can throw a lot of different things out there. And there are also two coaches that have no hesitation to do that. You know, we'll, I think we'll see, for bits and pieces, we'll see some really unusual groupings there, and I'm very excited to see that too.
2: Yeah, it should be interesting. Um, I think we'll see some Kawhi at the four too. I don't think uh, Popovich will be afraid to uh, to try and go small and sort of counter the heat that way, which is a bummer because I was actually uh, I thought there were some places where the Pacers could have tried some lineups with Paul George at the four um, mm-hmm. in that last series that I thought you know I, I know it's late in the season to try a monkey wrench like that, something that they they hardly ever did there in the regular season, but um, but anyway, but I think um, you know I think we saw a little bit in the regular season. In a little bit in the in the finals last year, that Diao can defend LeBron. I mean, maybe credibly as a stretch, but he can do as as good a job on on LeBron as anybody else on that team besides Kawhi can. And so there there might be some places for him to to cross match in, in some lineups.
1: Yeah, there could be some cross matches in the one of the things that I found interesting in the Pacers series was how well. Paul George did when he was defending Wade and how that matchup worked. And I think that could end up leading to some interesting things because obviously we've said that Kawhi is the best defender on LeBron, but the idea of basically taking out everybody else on the heat and letting LeBron get his is something that, would be very interesting against this Heat team as we've been seeing Wade a little more limited than in other years.
2: Yeah, and and uh, Nate Duncan from Basketball Ins- Insiders was talking about that matchup when the Pacers first used it on Twitter. And his point, I thought, was really interesting was that that it was sort of a value-added thing, that the difference between George and Stevenson on LeBron was not huge, but the difference between George and Stevenson on Wade was huge because George's so much of a better off-ball defender playing passing lanes, creating steals and turnovers. And we saw a little bit of that, right, as it was happening. So it's interesting to think about that in this series. But actually, um, going back to your point about who LeBron covers – Maybe not having LeBron on, on, uh, on either Parker or Ginobili and having him matched up on Leonard where he's, you know, where he's essentially taking Leonard out, you know, that's a big margin for the Heat, but then he's playing the passing lanes, then he's a help defender on Parker and Ginobili, and that might be a place where they're sort of getting some more value added from his defense.
1: And that goes along also with the idea of Miami not having a traditional rim protector, and so kind of having that responsibility fall on a couple of guys, and so giving LeBron a less... Active assignment not only helps him offensively, but it allows him to freelance a little more defensively, which I think he's still very, very good at. So that that might I think that makes some sense. If you can keep the other guys grounded, because obviously, that's an important factor. If we're talking about the idea of value added, if we're saying that, you know, you have to you can't be hemorrhaging it somewhere else. But if you can keep those. Keep those in line, then you can generally reach an equilibrium that could be a really beneficial long-term outcome for the Heat. Yeah, and he, you know he
2: might not be on the floor at the end of games, but Norris Cole did such an amazing job on Stevenson the last three, three, four games of the of the Pacers series that, you know, putting him on Parker or Ginobili for some stretches is uh, seems reasonable where it might have sort of been laughable a, a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, based on the way they played in their series, I would seriously consider having Cole in the lineup to close games. I think that his his defensive energy is there, and I like that. You know, it seems like he can hit open shots when they're there. He's gotten. There's a weird parallel to me in some ways with Draymond Green. It's that you know they were both guys who the various stats kind of hated early on in their careers, but as they've grown into players, I think they've honed a lot of their weaknesses out. And I think that he's not Norris is not a perfect player, but I feel like there are things that he brings that Chalmers doesn't, that could be incredibly useful in this specific series.
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And there was, uh, I can't remember who, who did it. Somebody at Grantland maybe, uh, last week, but there was a feature on, on Cole and about, um, some of sort of the, the offensive pieces that he's had to refine, you know, in his time in the league, um, and, and sort of get himself under control, figure out where his shots are coming from, play a little more, uh, Change speeds in the pick and roll a little bit more, where you know, when he first came in the league, everything was just sort of full speed into the lane in the air as fast as you could, and then figure out once you what you were going to do once you're in the air,
3: yeah.
1: And the other thing that I think is an interesting matchup or interesting dynamic in this series on the off court fest factor is the strange thing I feel like every basketball person that I know is going to be rooting for the Spurs in this series. <laughs> and. It's weird to think of kind of the basketball people all going in one direction. Like I'm somebody who I've rooted for LeBron a long time. We're the same age. I've followed him a long time. But I, I feel like it's really hard to root against the Spurs considering what this would mean for such an intensely popular team. And, and the fact that it doesn't hurt, you know, if you're a team of another fan base other than Miami, obviously, it doesn't hurt your your team moving forward for them to win. It's just kind of in a way it's just the capstone on a pretty remarkable legacy.
3: Yeah, and
2: I think there's – I don't know if pity is the right word, but, like, you definitely – there's definitely some empathy for that for the Spurs situation last year of being minutes away or seconds away, really, and losing that series and not necessarily – You know, like as a culture, if if somebody, you know, makes a mistake and blows something, you know, we're we're happy to sort of point fingers and say, well, it's your fault. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. But the way that the way that shifted in game six, it was so just sort of the random bounce of the ball and, you know, a little extra effort by Bosh and then, you know, a great shot by Allen. It was not like it was not like the Spurs melted down. It, in a way that that you could sort of be like, well, it's there, you know, where you could sort of wipe away that sympathy or empathy. So I think that there's definitely some of that built up that like, you know, they, they were sort of every bit as good as the Heat were last year and they, you know, bounce on the ball, they lost that series. And so there's there's some, uh, I guess empathy would be the word empathy for their situation.
1: The other thing that has been remarkable to me just in the way that we all think about it, and that was kind of the fun of doing a year in review podcast not on the season but on the calendar year was I feel like the how close they got in game seven has been lost a little bit in the shuffle because they they had a really insanely good chance to win that game if Tim Duncan had to hit that bunny and then just that would have changed the dynamics around. And so they got obviously they got closer in game six because I can't think of a basketball finals moment like that where a team got closer to winning a championship and lost but they had a real chance in game seven too and while it doesn't haunt them in the same way it it adds to the kind of the heartbreak in that sense
2: yeah for sure and they're you know they're not a team that other than this sort of narrative that like they're boring and they're uninteresting they're not a team that like I don't feel like they're a team that inspires hatred or dislike or distaste. You know, there's, there's not a lot on this team to be like, God, you know, those guys are jerks. I just, there's no way I could bring myself to root for the Spurs because you know, whatever where, you know, there's a lot of other teams that are like that. You know, people have antipathy for LeBron still left over, over the decision and, and whatever else. And, and, yeah, but I, f- I feel like the Spurs aren't like that, you know. You you either like them or you're kind of <laughs> neutral, you know. I don't feel like people hate the Spurs.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that a lot. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure to have you on, and I'll keep reading your material everywhere that it's up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Daniel. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thanks again to Ian for coming on. You can read him at Hickory High, which is hickory-high.com. Hardwood Paroxysm, and com, And you can follow him on Twitter at Hickory High. That's H-I-C-K-O-R-Y-H-I-G-H. And next up is Jack Winter. Jack writes for Hardwood Paroxysm and had a really good conversation with him. We went into some of the broader issues also that going into the finals. I really like that. We go for about 33 minutes. I uh, hope you enjoy it.
0: Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, man. It's. Uh, I mean, I'm glad to be doing it, and so excited that we got the... Spurs-Heat rematch that I think a lot of us saw coming, but um, yeah, it should be great. I can't wait for Thursday.
1: And that's the interesting part is that while a lot of us wanted this matchup and a lot of us expected it, it took a pretty circuitous route to get here, and I was wondering kind of what your initial thoughts were. Now we're a little bit over a day after we found out that's going to be the matchup on what you think is coming for the finals.
0: I picked the Spurs over the Heat in seven games uh, on multiple podcasts and in multiple articles before the playoffs began. Um, and at this point, to be honest with you, I have no idea. I mean, if you're picking the home team in a seven game series, you're basically saying it's a coin flip anyway. Right. And after what we've seen in the playoffs thus far, I mean, Miami has been close to dominant, you know, in their first three series, but they, you know, played far inferior competition to what San Antonio played. And, you know, what can you take from San Antonio's first round series against Dallas? That seems like eons ago now. Uh, but no one expected that to go seven games, and then they just ran Portland off the floor. And even kind of, you can even think about the Oklahoma City series that same way you think about the Dallas series with Serge Ibaka's injury and um, all the funky lineups that each coach kind of deployed midway through. I'm really not sure what to make of San Antonio right now, other than that they're clearly one of the best two teams in the league, and I expected them to be here. But just in how it relates to the finals and who to choose, I've you know I've seen such good things from both teams, and I've seen... Enough kind of confusing things from both teams in the uh, in the postseason thus far that I guess I just have to stick with my kind of it's almost a it's almost a cop out pick of San Antonio in seven games. But as of now, in this early stages of analysis, that's what I'm going with.
1: Yeah, and the interesting thing that I've been having some trouble with is calibrating Miami's opponents in the West. So mm. obviously, we know that you know their first round opponent wasn't up to the same caliber as the western conference teams that made it into the playoffs but brooklyn wasn't a terrible team and they were they played in a, a series that was kind of shaky but interesting against toronto and then indiana is wildly inconsistent but i would say indiana is at worst better than portland so it's interesting because you just try to figure out what that means in terms of so, yeah, as you said, you know, calibrating, figuring out what it actually means that we've seen from them so far.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, I like that point you made. Um, the East is obviously inferior to the West this year. There's no doubt about that. But Brooklyn was one of the best teams in the league uh, once Brook Lopez got hurt and they went small with Kevin Garnett at the five and Paul Pierce at the four. Um, I, I, can't, I can't remember the numbers, but I know that they had one of the five best records in the league since January 1st and were playing some of the best defense in the league since then, too. Um, and, you know, they presented a really difficult matchup for Miami and a unique matchup. Um, you know, they were with that small lineup and Paul Pierce and Joe Johnson and, you know, even Alan Anderson and Sean Livingston had some success guarding LeBron and Dwayne Wade at times. Uh, they presented a really unique matchup for Miami and Miami really took care of them. And I really think I I'm not sure Miami had their foot on the gas pedal the way they did against Indiana. And then, if LeBron doesn't get in foul trouble against Indiana, I think that's a five game series, and I think we could all you know pretty much agree on that. They ran Indiana off the floor, and Indiana, as much as they struggled offensively uh, down the stretch of the regular season, and then obviously at times during the postseason as well, their defense, while not the historically great maybe best ever defense that we saw in the first eight to ten weeks of the season, was still the league's best, um, you know and they showed that throughout the first throughout the first couple rounds of the playoffs and Miami just ran them off the floor. They dismantled Indiana. And, and, le- and like, you said, how do you calibrate it? Who knows what to take from kind of the mess uh, that was Indiana. I mean, in basketball, you know, locker room stuff and chemistry matters so much and, you know, Indiana probably let that seep onto the floor a bit, but Miami ran them off the floor and, you know, I didn't expect that. I expected Miami to win a hard-fought series in six games, and I don't think that series was too hard-fought. So I like what you said about, you know, kind of going back and looking at Miami's Eastern Conference opponents um, in relation to San Antonio's, and while not as tough as the Spurs, the Heat's opponents were certainly difficult, especially from a uh, kind of a unique matchup perspective.
1: And as much as I don't want it to be decided this way, it certainly feels like health is going to be a major factor in this, and One of the interesting things about the way that the finals is formatted is that it's so much longer in terms of gaps between games as opposed to the other series. And while certainly I think teams like Oklahoma City would have been hurt by that comparatively because they're young, and except for Serge Ibaka, they're relatively healthy, it's interesting because you can make an argument that both of these teams, depending on if you're focusing on top-end talent or more rotation-level talent, is helped more by the more elongated format.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the news came out yesterday that uh, Tony Parker's Tony Parker should be ready for Game One, um, and, but who knows what ill effects he'll suffer for, or he'll suffer from that ankle injury in this series. And it's easy to forget that in the 2013 Finals, he injured his hamstring, I think, in Game Three, um, and then that kind of affected him the last few games of the series. Everyone remembers his incredible final 90 seconds of Game Six before Ray Allen's, you know, now you know arguably one of the most important shots in NBA history you know, Tony Parker took that game over and that's what we remember, but he shot nine of 35 in game six and seven last year. And while that's partially due to the awesome defense, LeBron James played on him, uh, he was hobbled. And if, you know, if he wasn't, um, you know, perhaps, perhaps this is a different story going into this rematch and it's the heat that are looking for redemption after a, uh, you know, after a tough loss in game seven, but, from the Miami injury perspective, um, you really have—I mean, as crazy as it sounds to say, given where he was 18 months ago—you really have to worry about, you know, Chris Anderson. He's been just so important to them as they've kind of almost went—not aw- totally went away—from the small ball identity, obviously. But he's just—he's their only rim protector. He's—and then he's a great finisher. He brings them so much energy and activity. And I think he's not a. He's not the perfect defender for Tim Duncan. Obviously, I'm not sure there is a perfect defender for Tim Duncan. But if every but of every player on the Miami roster, I think he has the best chance to bother Duncan, you know, more than any player on that team. So, yeah, as as much as we hate to say it and would hate to see it, the injury concerns for both teams are real, and it's a shame. Let's just hope they uh, don't linger too long here.
1: From what you've seen, do you think that we're closer to 100% or a better Dwayne Wade for this Finals than last year?
0: Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, mean, he's come out and said it, that this is the healthiest he's been in a year. Um, you know, he didn't play well in the 2013 Eastern Conference Finals, and then he kind of rebounded um, in, the, in the 2013 Finals, especially in Game 5 when he and LeBron kind of took over in San Antonio, and we saw kind of flashes of flash, I guess. Um, but I'd say he's certainly as healthy as he's been. I mean, not just from your last question, I didn't even think to mention Dwayne Wade, and I think that shows you how healthy he is in relation to where he was last year. Now is he the player that he was, you know, 3 or 4 years ago or even that he was in the, you know, the 2011 finals? Absolutely not. He's lost a step and, you know, due to knee injuries and, you know, other wear and tear and just, you know, general age, but you know, he's been one of the most the five most effective players in the postseason thus far. And I think you could even make an argument at this point that he's the second best player in this series, the way he's been playing recently. I said, make an argument, not for sure. But there's an argument to be made. Miami has the two best players in this series. It's those ancillary pieces that are really going to be the difference for the Heat, because we know San Antonio has them. You know, The machine that Greg Popovich runs and has implemented, and he's turned Patty Mills and Marco Bellinelli, and especially Boris Diaw recently, um, into just you know, incredibly viable uh, reserves. And, you know, it's really remarkable. And I think one of the main questions for this series is whether or not Miami's um, supporting pieces, uh, Mario Chalmers, Norris Cole, Shane Battier, Richard Lewis, if they can come close to matching um, the production at San Antonio's reserves give them.
1: Yeah, and that goes along with something that's been a Miami trademark in the last couple of years is that getting that surprising contribution from somebody that can swing a game or two. And one of the big questions for me with Spolster is that now I think that there isn't a single guy in that group that's a clear cut candidate for that but I think that somebody can do it so it's basically going to be can the right button be pushed at the right time and that's an interesting thing and I think that there's a possibility you know that there needs to be another Mike Miller but the best Mike Miller they had was the one they had last year and so who knows if somebody else is going to be able to do that crazy you know four or five open threes because they will generate those and if they go to the right guy and it'd be crazy for a series to swing on something like that when you have this much star power both on the court and on the benches. But it seems like these teams are so evenly matched that it's possible.
0: Oh, it's certainly possible. And, I mean, I, you, we've seen it with both teams, you know, not only last season but this season. Obviously, Mike you know, Mike Miller was inserted into the starting lineup midway through the finals last year. Um, he hit that very memorable three-pointer in Game 6 when he was shoeless. And then Shane Battier, I think, hit six his first six three-point attempts maybe. Or maybe he just made six threes in Game 7. Um, And then, you know, we saw Matt Bonner inserted into the starting lineup midway through the Oklahoma City series for San Antonio just, you know, last week. Uh, One of the things I really, really love about Greg Popovich and Eric Spolstra in these teams is that they're not afraid to push buttons that they haven't pushed for quite some time. Um, Every player on the San Antonio and Miami benches are are ready to play whenever, whether it's Matt Bonner or James Jones, Aaron Baines, Richard Lewis, most recently from Miami, who was out of the rotation, you know, did an unbelievable job in the Indiana series, whether it was defensively in the first two games he started and then offensively in games five and six. And so that's really something to look for, uh, to watch for in this series. Who is going to be Mike Miller for Miami, but then who's going to be Mike Miller for San Antonio? Can they count? On Danny Green to have another, you know, to hit the most threes in NBA Finals history again. I'm not sure that's sustainable. Um, You know, Miami will certain certainly be looking for him, and it's those, like I said earlier, it's those behind the scenes questions that uh, that really might decide this one. Which sounds crazy for you know two teams with so much top high end talent. Um, but it really speaks to you know the uh, the brilliance of each coach and the systems they've implemented that that really could be what it comes down to.
1: That's a great point, and I don't want to move on to anything else before bringing up another point that I is something I love about Chris Anderson on this Heat team is that he knows where to be to not jack up their spacing despite his inability to shoot, and I think that that's something really interesting with them is that. He provides something that is, I think, essential to almost every great defense in that's rim protection, though Miami has, I think, been one of the first really great defenses to not have one. And to do that, while obviously he doesn't have the range on his shot of somebody like Bosh, but to to know where to be so that guys can't completely cheat and just destroy their penetration game is a really valuable asset – that would be, would be hard for Miami to replicate if he's not able to play to his full potential.
0: Yeah, he, I mean, Miami calls it, the. you know, they uh, kind of jokingly or affectionately call it the bird box. He kind of lingers uh, almost out of bounds in the short corner um, so he doesn't jack up Miami's spacing uh, when LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Norris Cole, whoever it may be, gets into the paint, and then he's just waiting there, whether it's for a quick dump-off or a dunk or layup or an offensive rebound. Um. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's very unique to Miami on both ends of the floor. Defensively, just from, like I said, from an energy and rim protection standpoint, we saw in the Indiana series right immediately when he came into the game, Miami had this jolt, this jolt of energy um, on defense. His rotations are early; they're active. He has high hands. He has quick feet for a man that size. Um, And then on the and then on the other end, Miami just doesn't have a finisher on the interior like him. I mean, even Chris Bosh is a Chris Bosh is a good finisher, but he's a different finisher. He's not finishing lobs. Um, He's not waiting in that bird box uh, for quick dump offs like that. So, I mean, I I keep coming back to that, but just and we both do. But just like I said, it's going to be players like Chris Anderson that decide this series. LeBron James, Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Dwayne Wade, Manu Ginobili. Ray Allen, Kawhi Leonard, Chris Bosh, all these high-end, top-shelf names, and then even Greg, pa- Greg Popovich and Eric Spolstra. But it's going to be the ancillary pieces that decide this series. I, re- I really believe that, and certainly if Chris Anderson isn't healthy, that'll be a huge blow to Miami because Udonis Haslam can't replicate what he brings to the Heat.
1: Before we went on the air, you and I were talking about how you'd watched some of LeBron against the Spurs this year to kind of prep for the finals. What did you learn from that from that experience?
0: Well, the first thing, the Spurs and Heat played twice this year. The Heat won the first matchup by double digits, and the Spurs won the second matchup by double digits. Kawhi Leonard and Dwayne Wade didn't play in the first game. Um, and so, obviously, when we kind of know by now when we're looking back at the regular season, if two teams match up in the playoffs, you can't read too much into what, to what you see, what you saw during the regular season. And obviously with no, no Leonard or Wade, that's especially true. But just watching film of LeBron's shots against the Spurs during the regular season, I was reminded that Borat, Boris Diaw did an exceptional job defending LeBron James during the finals last year. Really a, kind of a mind-boggling job. I remember on Twitter – you know he was switched on to LeBron, or Popovich went to that matchup at some point in Game One or Game Two, and everyone expected LeBron to go off or go right by him. But instead, you know Boris played several feet off him, just like Kawhi Leonard would, and used his length and his
3: you know, that
0: unique girth that he has to kind of bother LeBron in ways other defenders can't. So really, that's that that was kind of the biggest takeaway that the Spurs have two two defenders. Uniquely suited to defend LeBron, you know, better than most teams have, and Kawhi Leonard, in Kawhi Leonard and Boris Dio. and then just that they are so they're so reluctant to pressure him as most teams should be, and they just force LeBron into shooting, you know, 18 foot 18 foot pull up jumpers, and he was really really reluctant to shoot those in the first few games of the finals last year, and that's why Miami's offense was kind of bogged down at times, and I think one of the big questions for this finals is does he come out aggressive early in games one and two ready to shoot? Um, You know, that's, that's not his personality. We know he likes to, you know, he likes to get his buckets through the flow of the game. He likes to facilitate and things like that, but whether or not he's aggressive as a jump shooter, I think will really, really be important, especially at the beginning of the series because he will, I think we know that he will. And he showed it last year when the time comes. But the way San Antonio defends him, playing several feet off of him, going under every screen, forcing him to be a mid-range jump shooter, the shots that LeBron knows are inefficient, that he doesn't want to take. um, Whether or not he takes them in games one, two, and three, I think will be be very, very important for the outcome of each game.
1: Something that I'm very intrigued by uh, watching the Pacers series is the idea of the Spurs shifting their best defender, which would be Kawhi Leonard, in certain circumstances onto somebody else, probably Dwayne Wade, with the idea being that if you can completely shut down one of their other primary options, that you're going to ask LeBron to do a lot more and have to create a lot more. And that's an interesting idea that I'm not sure if the Spurs will replicate it, but I think they could have some limited success if they want to go to it, with their other perimeter defenders especially.
0: Yeah, and that's a, that's a point I didn't mention um, in watching the, watching the film from the regular season. Danny Green defended LeBron at times, um, and, then, and that was by design. Um, Kawhi Leonard was guarding Dwayne Wade. And it's, you know, it's those matchups that are going to be really important um, on the other side as well. And I looked at the lineup data uh, in, last night before going knew I was coming on this podcast and just in general wanting to do analysis for the finals. I think one of the big questions is whether or not Greg Popovich decides to play small or big. He played big with Tiago Splitter and Tim Duncan more often at the beginning of the finals last year. And then kind of in games four, five, six, and seven, he went smaller. And whether and it was Boris Diaw and Tim Duncan, and then also at times it was Kawhi Leonard, Tim Duncan, Manny Ginobili, Danny Green, and Tony Parker, that ultra small lineup that Miami likes to play. And in that case you know i I really think it'll be interesting to see how Eric Spolster adjusts and vice versa if the heat go big what is what does Popovich do? There are these you know questions that can kind of be considered the uh, game within the game that will that will really really matter because both teams play such flexible lineups and both coaches are obvious aren't reluctant to dust off uh, dust off players they they otherwise hadn't before and I think Miami a question for them defensively is who guards Danny Green from the outset i'm I don't think you can trust Dwayne Wade as uh, as kind of irresponsible and lazy as he can be defensively at times, off the ball especially. Um, I don't think you can trust Dwayne Wade to chase to chase Danny Green around screens and you know kind of worry about that pistol action that San Antonio likes to run with Danny Green in the corner. That's a big question for this series, and you know it's one I'm I'm interested to see. Uh, I'm, interested, I'm interested to see the answer.
1: I agree with you on that. I think that it's going to be interesting. Miami has their their pieces are going to be fascinating with that. The other lineup for the Spurs that I really want to see, and I can't honestly off the top of my head remember if we've seen much of it this year, is super small. Parker, Manu, Danny Green, Kawhi at the four, and Diaw at the five, mm. just to see how it works in terms of how Miami's defense functions. Because if they choose not to put somebody who can really stop Parker or Ginobili on those guys, if one of them can reliably penetrate, you just create so many just weird opportunities because every one of those guys, except for maybe Danny Green, can move the ball relatively well, and to see how miami's super attacking defense would work on a Spurs lineup that had didn't really have that kind of pivot point would be very interesting
0: yeah and that's a that's a great point um The Spurs are uniquely suited uh to kind of exploit miami's Hyperactive, hyper aggressive defense, right? And when they didn't last year, I think what we remember most about the um, about their offensive struggles is probably when um, they're in a high pick and roll with Thiago splitter and splitter rolled and then the ball handler would hit him. and that weak side defender it was normally Dwayne Wade or LeBron James. They're, you know, they have such quick hands and they're such elite athletes, they're so quick and strong. Splitter couldn't handle that rotation. Often wouldn't see it coming. Um, he'd either get the ball stolen or, you know, would kind of hold it and wouldn't know what to do. And against Miami, when the ball doesn't move, that's death. The ball has to move against Miami and San Antonio moves the ball better than any team in the league. And that's why I I actually really, like I hadn't thought about it, but I really like that idea of going super small with Dio at the five when Timmy has to be on the bench. You know, that, I think that might be the best option offensively for San Antonio. Defensively uh, the question is whether or not they can get it done, but, as we know, Miami likes to go small. Um, you know they don't feast on the offensive glass. Obviously, they're historically averse to offensive rebounding. Um, so the Spurs wouldn't be exploited there. So yeah, I, I, that's a that's a fascinating idea, and um, you know one I think Popovich should definitely think about.
1: The other interesting thing in terms of Spolster's decision making is that. I'm gonna. I'm having trouble figuring out where Miami's gonna go when LeBron sits, whether that be foul trouble or something else. Because we saw that in the Pacers series, and the Pacers are obviously an inferior team to the Spurs, just, just obviously. And I, I'm intrigued to see how they manage that. Do they want to do the idea of doing keeping their heads above water offensively or defensively, and using guys like that, or do they just want to go? We want to have our best lineups on the floor when LeBron is on. When LeBron is there to make sure that we're dominating in those minutes and that's going to be a huge decision point in this series because Popovich doesn't have a player that that is that kind of focal point but Spolster does
0: yes absolutely and uh it was interesting in the in the Miami series in game or I'm sorry in the Indiana series uh in game five when LeBron was on the bench we saw that you know the Heat can even when even when LeBron is forced to sit for extended stretches the Heat are a talented enough team and their system is such and their culture is such That um, you know, they can still be very effective on both sides of the ball. They can still move it, swing it from side to side, penetrate, drive, and kick on offense. And then on defense, they can still be hyperactive. um, You know, because they're you know they're so quick. They're so quick. Dwayne Wade's obviously lost a step, but he's still as quick, almost as quick as any shooting guard in the league. He has unbelievable instincts. Norris Cole is one of the speediest guards in the league. Their big men are fast. The Heat can withstand the loss of LeBron for you know, a couple minutes and, uh, you know, game five showed us that, but against San Antonio, you know, it's a, it's a totally different animal on both ends of the floor. And Greg Popovich probably more than any coach in the league is, is better equipped to exploit the, you know, disadvantage of having LeBron on the bench for Miami. Um, so the rotations for the Eric Spolstra, LeBron hasn't been sitting at the beginning of second quarters, like he did in the regular season. He'll play a couple minutes and, and then he'll sit the kind of meat of the second quarter before coming in with, you know, five or six minutes left. Um, I think that's a big question. And whether or not Spolstra in those situations when LeBron is on the bench goes Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch or whether it's just been Dwayne Wade like it has been. Because like I said, against San Antonio, everything matters more. You know, every it's there's just that minutia that matters so much in basketball. It matters even more against San Antonio, not be, not just because of their talent, but because of how smart they are how smart their players are and how smart their coaches are.
1: Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. Um, moving kind of off the court for a little bit, one thing that as I've been sitting there ruminating about the series that's been really interesting to me is that for the first time in a long time, at least in my mind, there seems to be a pretty strong feeling among all the basketball people I talk to that they're whether or not they think they're going to win, they're all rooting for the Spurs. And I think that's a really interesting thing because you don't usually see it where there's kind of that uniform. Because I think a lot of people, even the people who like Miami, I I'm a fairly strong and admitted LeBron supporter for various reasons. But this Spurs team, I feel like in some ways they just deserve it. And I mean, with the reporting that came out that Pop and Duncan were going to walk into the sunset, possibly if they won the title, I think that there's an interesting movement that people would be very happy if they won.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of like you. I've I've been in, I don't want to say I've been a LeBron fan since he came into the league, but I'm just a I'm just a supporter of the way he plays and the way he conducts himself on the court and off of it. So and I don't, you know, if you talk to analysts and I I've, I've I've seen this as well. They are kind of rooting for San Antonio. I don't think that has anything to do with LeBron hate. I think it has far more to do with how much you know we love Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich and the San Antonio Spurs and the way that they play basketball something i've been telling people friends especially when they ask me so like how do you how do you root for teams are you a fan of a certain team or player now that you're more of an analyst and i say well it's i root for greatness and cuz i you know i want to see I want to see the legendary happen. You know, I wasn't quite old enough to remember Michael Jordan, so I can only hear stories like that. And I don't. I just reference Michael Jordan as an example because he's the most obvious uh, example of greatness here in the last 20 years, 20, 30 years in the NBA. But the great thing about this series is that you can root for greatness with the Heat for a three-peat with LeBron James you know, going for his third title, or you can root for greatness with San Antonio, uh, with Tim Duncan getting his fifth championship trophy, and he and Pop riding off into the sunset, as I've kind of said I've, uh, I've wanted to happen in the past. It's really, it's it's fantastic. As much as I would have enjoyed to see LeBron James, Kevin Durant, and Dwayne Wade and Russell Westbrook all on the same floor, this is the matchup I wanted, and I think it's the matchup the basketball community wanted, you know, as much from a, a talent and execution standpoint as a, uh, as a narrative standpoint, because like I said, you can root for greatness uh, with both teams, and I think that's what, you know, the analysts, and I guess I feel comfortable speaking for everyone there. At least that's what I, that's what I love to do. And um, in this series, you know, no matter who wins, we'll be seeing greatness.
1: Yeah, I think the point on greatness is good. And the idea that there's narrative power either way is is nice. And also there's interesting, there are interesting ramifications for the league either way. You know, we don't know what's going to happen with Miami and we don't know how my, a Miami win or loss would affect it, but I've been thinking a lot the last couple of weeks as I've been really savoring these Spurs runs. And I wrote this on Twitter during Game 6, is that I'm going to really miss these Spurs teams when they're gone. And we know they're going to be gone soon. You know, We know that they're going to be very different two years from now, if not six months from now. And I'm very intrigued by, as much as I'm enjoying these finals, and I don't think that doing one makes the other one weaker, is I'm absolutely fascinated by what comes next for them. Because Tony Parker's a young man, comparatively, and he, other than his injuries, his game isn't really, his game should age relatively well. And I'm really intrigued to see what he wants to do as his next act and what the Spurs as an organization do. And I'm really intrigued to be able to enjoy this series while also keeping my crazy looking into the future mind active with what both of these teams could be, because they're the class of the league right now. And we know that both organizations are absolutely fabulous. And I hope Popovich is going to be involved even when he steps off the sideline, whenever that is. And it's really fun for me to to watch this series and enjoy it while at the same time think, wow, where's this league going to be three to four years from now?
0: That's a great point. I mean, I, you know, as as someone in their mid 20s and who really kind of came of age as an. NBA fan and follower, um, kind of right around right around 2000, and Timmy came into the league in 1998. Where does the NBA go without without the Tim Duncan San Antonio Spurs? I don't know. And um, you know that's a that's a great point. It's kind of a depressing point that you made. I don't you know I don't like to think about the Spurs ending. I was I went into ultimate fan mode last night and started watching fan made hype videos for the finals, and you know just these. Still images and these slow moving, uh, you know, shots of every every personality in this series, I literally got emotional about it because I was reminded that, you know, we're not going to see Popovich and Duncan and Ginobili here for the, la- you know, in the next, you know, if they win at all, maybe, you know, maybe they ride off into the sunset, as we said this year. Um, they can't be around forever. I mean, some people thought that, you know, after the saying of last year's loss in the finals, Popovich has admitted to thinking about game six every single day, multiple times a day. Some people thought that would kind of ruin their season. And that was the end of San Antonio. Obviously it wasn't. Uh, those people were wrong. I never expected that, you know, the Spurs are, you know, maybe this is, you could argue that this is the best first team ever, I think. But like you said, at some point it's, it'll be over. Um, and
3: <laughs> like,
0: I, I'm, I'm almost at a loss for words because it's just a depressing thought. I don't, I don't want to think of an NBA without, without Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich and Manny Ginobili. Um As far as where the Spurs go, they no matter how good Kawhi Leonard turns out to be or how long Tony Parker can maintain this level of play, to me the Spurs won't be the Spurs if Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich you know, aren't on the floor. So, like I said, that's kind of a depressing thought, but it's also kind of a beautiful thought, because if the Spurs get the win, um, you know, I can't imagine a better way for both of them to retire than, um, you know, than avenging probably the worst loss of their careers with the championship.
1: And the other thing to me, in terms of the beauty of it, is that I think these are the two most beautiful teams to watch, and we get we hopefully we'll get a lot of games of it hopefully we'll get close games because that was the weird thing to me about the Thunder Spurs series was that none of the games were particularly interesting after the first half but I think we're going to get some of the prettiest basketball not that we're going to see this year but that we're going to see for a long time and I'm really looking forward to that and thanks to the elongated schedule we're going to get to see it over a longer period of time as long as it goes a long time but I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's being a little bit older, not much older than you. Uh-huh. But it, the idea that to under to see something with the understanding that it's going away, to just remember to savor it. And now the really nice thing is with the way that basketball can be reconsumed, it's a lot easier to know that we can fall back on it and to know that we're going to be able to. If this is great, obviously it's not going to be the same thing to watch it again. But that we already have one finals between these two teams that. I know that at some point in my life, probably 10 years from now, I'm going to go back and go, wow, that was really fun to watch, and remembering where I was, and remembering how much fun it was to watch that series, and my full hope and expectation is that we're going to get another one of those, and I'm just excited for that because we see it in a lot of sports where the championship round isn't the most exciting thing, and you can think back if you're a football fan to the Super Bowl this year. Mm -hmm the Super Bowl this year was just, it was disappointing in the sense that it was over before it started in a lot of ways, but I'm really excited that the NBA generally, you and I talked about that this the last time you were on, the two best teams generally make it it to the finals, or at least are in the conversation, and the fact that we're getting that, and I don't think that the fans are going to be cheated unless there are injuries, and I'm very excited about that reality, that we're even if it doesn't live up to expectations, we're still going to get to see some really good basketball, and we're still going to get to see a deserving champion, which I think is incredibly important.
0: It's incredibly important, and uh, you know, like you said, we talked about it last time we were on how one of the things we love about the NBA is that the best team, the best team and second best team almost always wins. The best, The best players are always rewarded. The best coaches are always rewarded. The best teams are always rewarded at the end. And I think that's something very important. And that's obviously what we're getting from the heat and Spurs, no matter who ends up winning. And it's funny you mentioned that, you know, in 10 years from now, you'll, you know, you'll want to go back and watch, uh, you know, the 2013 finals or this finals. Um, I've had all all seven games of the 2013 finals on my DVR since, you know, since last summer. And I've just watched them just at random times. And I'm bored just because it's such beautiful basketball and it's such intense basketball from both sides and, yeah, you know, so many. There were so many amazing moments. Whether it was Tony Parker's shot at the end of Game One, Ray Allen's three, uh, you know, at the end of at the end of regulation in Game Six, Danny Green's onslaught, LeBron's block on Thiago's splitter, Duncan missing the chippy over Battier in the final 90 seconds of Game Seven, you know, followed by LeBron's jumper to seal it. I think I think more of those moments are coming, and I'm I'm just I'm just so excited that we get the rematch that uh, I think we've kind of all wanted and kind of have all seen kind of coming over the last month or so. And like you said, it's both teams play this game the way this game is meant to be played. They move it, uh, you know, they move the ball from side to side. You know, their, their supporting pieces matter almost just as much as their, as their big stars. Both coaches are, you know, elite on both ends of the floor. They preach the same thing, process over results. You know, just you, you couldn't ask for a better matchup, whether or not they played last year. And just the fact that it's a rematch um, just kind of adds to the drama and just how awesome it's going to be. So like like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I just can't wait for Thursday, and, you know, I think it's going to be great.
1: Agreed on all counts. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, man, it was fun. Thanks again to Jack Winter for coming on. You can read him at Hardwood Proxism. You can also follow him on Twitter at Armstrong Winter. That's A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G-W-I-N-T-E-R. And finally, in part one, we have Beckley Mason, who's speak, New York Times. I like having conversations with him. It was fun to have him on the last time, and I really wanted him to be a part of of this. And I, I liked his insight, and it was fun. He was a good example of how I liked that I asked the same question of a lot of different people and got a lot of interesting answers, and I think that his insight into that, and we talked a little bit about fandom and everything like that, and I thought that was an interesting conversation as well. Runs about 23 minutes. I enjoyed having him on. Hope you like it, too. Thanks so much for coming on.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: It's exciting to, to think about all the possibilities with this finals. I mean, we did, did just see it last year, but what were your first thoughts once we knew over the weekend that this was going to be our matchup?
3: Well, I first started thinking, I mean, probably like everyone, just how incredibly close it was last time. I mean, really, the Spurs probably should have won. Um, it's one of these. It's one of these series that I think people will remember as sort of adding to. Depending on what happens this year, I guess, but adding to this legacy of LeBron the Unstoppable. The same way Jordan, you know, we think of those series victories as foregone conclusions. Now, you know, it's, it's hard to remember back then. You know, the Knicks, the Pacers, even the Jazz, people thought that Jordan was done, that he couldn't do it on that last title run. And I think that's kind of, it's it's been added to LeBron's lore that way, but it's still fresh enough that we can remember just how incredibly close it was. And also to think about, you know, this first team, like they've certainly gotten better.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I was talking about this with somebody a couple of weeks ago that, to me, the Heat are, I don't know, they're very similar. The the really huge question mark with them is, is Wade. I think Wade looks better to me than he did last time. But to me, the Spurs are unquestionably better. I think that their role players are looking a lot better. I think Kawhi has gone a long way. And other than we'll see what happens with his health, I haven't seen a deterioration from the older guys that I expected, especially when we saw those rough patches from Manu in the finals last year.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's really a great point, is Manu was kind of awful <laughs> last year. Um, certainly just all over the place in the finals. And the Heat have gotten a little bit lucky, if you consider. I mean, well, I guess you can argue that they bring out the worst in Manu and did the same with James Harden. But those were two sort of like X factors that, the other team really needed that second ball mover to really make things happen for them, hit open shot, be that scoring punch to match up with LeBron when he ran with the bench unit. And uh, they did not really get, you know, peak Manu, certainly. He kind of threw the game away at times. So, yeah, Manu looks great. Everyone's healthy. I mean, it seems like everybody is at full strength, so there's going to be no excuses um, this time.
1: And the other, to me, interesting dynamic with this series is that if it had been the Thunder, we would have had the questions of, oh, you know, how are they going to beat Miami? But with the Spurs, we already know that. They, they basically did it already. <laughs> they didn't end up getting the victory. But I think that not only did they probably come the closest to winning a championship of any team that didn't, and that I can think of at least, but they didn't play to their maximum last year when they almost won. So I think that the path to victory for them is certainly there, though there still is the open question of whether they'll actually do it.
3: Yeah, I mean this thats man, it's just so hard to to not take LeBron. But on the other hand, it's so hard to not take the Spurs. <laughs> it's just a great series in that way. I mean, part of me was sort of aching for that the the kind of symmetry of LeBron and Durant, Westbrook versus Wade. Um, Ibaka versus Bosch, and I think that could have been fun. But I think in terms of quality of basketball, both these teams, they, they're they're so similar, which is kind of funny because the Spurs are hold, held, held up as this model of, you know, growing from the bottom and finding all these guys from abroad and extensive scouting. And he seemed like, okay, we're going to get, like, castoffs that you really know, you know, names that are very familiar with you and bring in these huge free agents. But when you look at the way they play, things they value, sort of the pragmatism, David Thor put it that way, of both teams, the way that they unlock uh, other teams' weaknesses, their flexibility, the amount of threes. I mean, it really, the parallels are pretty striking.
1: And the other thing that's really interesting about these two is that they have the largest degree of organizational stability, I would say, of any teams in the mm-hmm. NBA. And... While you may not think of that as being a factor in terms of the finals, I really think it is because what that means is that these have been teams that have the entire year, and I would say the last couple of years, have been totally free to try everything. Yep. And so I was talking with Jack Winter about how he was a little bit frustrated that they, the Pacers didn't play Paul George at the four or kind of some of that weird stuff, but they never tried it because – they were in that mode of we need to get we need to get the number 1 seed we need to do that for the game 7 that ended up never coming but they couldn't have known that and these are teams that have thrown everything against the wall and if and they would be willing to do new things if for whatever reason they had the the need to and i think that there's something to be said for that and i think a lot of that comes from the stability that these two organizations have from the top all the way down
3: i think you're right i think um You know, it's partly a function that they're both veteran teams, as we know. But I wrote a a story about Diao and how the Spurs have, you know, been so flexible. And Spurs used 30 starting lineups this year, which is so freaky and weird. It's, like, hard to really even articulate. I mean, basically, the only team that was in their stratosphere was the Lakers, and that was because they really – didn't give a crap about their season and were just, as you say, like there's two kinds of throwing it at the wall. Like there's one where it's like we don't care, like let's just see what happens. And then there's like what the Spurs do, where they're like meticulously experimenting and ooh, can this lineup work with these guys? And let's give this guy a rest and up his playing time by eight more minutes. Um, and then the Heat were 20 different starting lineups, which you know compared to the Pacers and Thunder, both single digits. I think the Pacers – or maybe the Thunder only had like four and the Pacers had nine. One or the other is, is similar to that. You know, they are these teams that that have really thought ahead and they have all the foundation laid, you know, as you say, with the ownership and with the team structure and, and everyone's, you know, comfortable and at home. And so, you know, they can get weird and people aren't going to freak out. They're so stable – emotionally, also, I think, from the top down uh, with the players they have, and keep on such an even keel that throughout the year, everyone just you know has that faith.
1: I was trying to think of how often it's happened that one team was probably widely considered to be the better team, but the other team clearly has the best player, and it's interesting that, that, that you have that duality in this series, but also one thing that's been fun for me having these conversations with people is... Everybody seems to be keying on different people as being some of the pivotal ones for the series. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are saying LeBron, but I was wondering who you're <laughs> thinking. Who you're, who you're thinking. Let's, let's exclude LeBron, because I think that's a little bit obvious, but beyond him, who you think are some of the people that could really shift this series?
3: Yeah, LeBron LeBron will factor prominently. Uh, all the Heat three-point shooters, Chalmers. I would put in that list, I think he's a, he's a very good spot-up shooter. Charles Allen, Richard Lewis, Shane Battier, I think in order to beat the Spurs, those guys are going to have to make shots because we saw last year how well the Spurs do at packing it in, denying some of the basic stuff that he wanted to do. I mean, Wade actually shot pretty well. I mean, he, his like, individual numbers last year were good, but The team numbers, the offense was not good. And I think that speaks to just how well the Spurs took away sort of the, I would say, the the punchline possessions where it works around, it works around, and then all of a sudden someone's got a wide-open shot or a wide-open layup in the last four seconds of the shot clock. I think the Spurs really do a good job of keeping their defensive integrity. So when those guys do get chances, you know, when – Matty A gets some run. You know, Rashard Lewis, I'm sure, is going to play. I think all those guys are going to be crucial. If they don't shoot a high percentage in – well, here's the thing. You know, they don't have to shoot, like, for the series, 40%. They just have to probably have two really good games, maybe another one that's pretty good, and then hope that LeBron kind of puts them over the top on one of them. Um, And then for the Spurs, Diao, I think, is going to be pretty vital. You know, he's going to spend time on LeBron. He's going to – Lubricate that uh, offensive machine that the that the Spurs have, taking the ball out on the perimeter, kind of giving them that second point guard. Those are the two guys I will definitely be looking for. And um, you know whether or not Parker is fully healthy, I think I might have spoken too early, uh, too soon, early in the podcast because I guess it's not a hundred percent. If he wears down. I thought that was a huge thing that happened in last year's playoffs. It's really tough for LeBron to be chasing you and bodying you all over the court, Um, and I think he wore down over those seven games. So we'll see how much he has left. I basically named everyone in the series now, so you can tell that uh, (laughs) no one has any idea what's going to go on and everything's going to matter or not matter.
1: I feel terrible for Patty Mills because nobody mentions Patty Mills. Oh, well, (laughs) he'll be fine. He'll be fine. He'll survive. He has, he seems like things are going pretty well for him. But the other thing that I've been thinking about in this is that I think Kawhi Leonard has the possibility of really making a name for himself. And when the playoffs are starting and I, I spent a lot of time talking with people and, you know, the idea that the playoffs make people that are known into into superstars and they make people that aren't known into household names. And I feel like Kawhi hasn't done that yet, this playoffs. And He's a really fabulous player, and obviously, you don't usually see defensive guys do that. I mean, certain situations we've seen it. Tony Allen actually did a decent job of that for the people, the more casual people mm-hmm. that weren't aware of his insanity. And I, I think that he's a guy who we could be sitting back and, and you know, maybe even a couple of years from now, and going, "That's when everybody knew." And yeah. I, I really hope that because he's such a fabulous player, and there's there have been some interesting discussions about especially if this LeBron defensive lull is, um, is a larger thing. It's not just him being tired, which we, we don't know, honestly. And if there is this possibility that Kawhi becomes the best perimeter defender in the league, this would be an amazing time for that jumping off point.
3: Yeah, Kawhi would be a very interesting player to become the best defensive player in the league. I'm just taking up this random <laughs> this add-on that you had first because he's like not that quick. Laterally, for, you know, I mean, obviously, he's a fantastic athlete. But in terms of like the Tony Allen, freaky, super quick, uh, you know, Avery Bradley, Patrick Beverly, he doesn't really have that. What he has, you know, is is great positional instincts and fundamentals, always having his hips in front of his guy the way he should. And obviously, those long arms, strong hands, you know, the right disposition to keep going back after it. But I think, and I think playing LeBron is a good way to make your name. Like, even if you don't win, uh, if you have two games where you play really well against LeBron, which is kind of what happened to Paul George uh, two years ago and to a lesser extent this year, you know, uh, without all the Spurs funkiness, we probably would have noticed that he actually performed very well in a couple games. And when you do that against LeBron, it just, heightens your profile so much. I I think that Kawhi is definitely one of those guys. I think that Patty Mills, Corey Joseph could have sort of breakout games. They're so much better than Gary Neal and so much more dangerous to the Heat. Uh, And I also think that um, I guess what I'm really searching for here is I just don't think any of the Spurs will ever be household names who aren't, like, doing it for a long time. Like, you look at the way – that it's taken, like, 15 years for everybody to come around on the Spurs. And I don't mean everybody like hoop nerds. I mean everybody. Like, the Spurs are now an okay team to say you like. And I think it's basically because it took them 15 years to become weird. And, like, people are okay liking weird things. They're not okay liking boring things nobody's really ever heard of. But they're boring, sort of uh, solid, you know, the march-goes-on style of team became very uh, interesting and noteworthy eventually. And so I think that even, even if Kawhi is a great series and even if they win, you know, the nature of how they play their regular seasons will always sort of dull that to me.
1: That's a really good point. And the other thing that I think about a lot with the way, the reason the Spurs have that reputation is those two horrible finals. Against, the, like the horrible finals that they had because the East was so bad. I mean, the one against Cleveland yeah. was bad. The one against Detroit was an abomination. <laughs> and uh, it's just you know, and I believe the other one was against the Nets, right? And that was pre- not, that was the one where Duncan got a triple double, if I'm remembering correctly. Like he had that huge game. Um, yeah, my brain yep, That was a that anyway. was a
3: great kid, uh, great series between uh, he and kid. They both actually showed up pretty well.
1: Yeah, and and so you had that, and also you had those Spurs teams going against. Some incredibly popular Western Conference teams. And so you had them as kind of the, their their foils were all more, if you want to call it charismatic, than they were. And while I still think that's generally true because this Thunder team has a lot of appeal with Westbrook and Durant and Ibaka to a degree, there's something that makes them stand out now. And I think also now they're freaky in an interesting way because they've been around so long. You have these casual people who, you know, people talk about that it's 15 years since Duncan first made you know duncan's run and all that stuff and it's like you know there are people who casually watch basketball who have to be thinking themselves wait he's here again and that makes (laughs) them interesting i I mean there have been people like us that have followed it the whole way but if you're a casual person and just kind of thinking about like if you're only seeing sports and seeing the nba you know and passing and everything maybe you see some stuff on sports center this first team has to be completely baffling because it's these names you've heard before but they were gone for a couple of years, and then they're back, and it's the same people they are playing. Those guys are playing similarly to what they used to play. Obviously, the team is very different. And I, I it's hard for me to completely get in that mode because that's just not who I am. But at the same point, it's really interesting to think about how this affects their legacy to people who are more casually into basketball.
3: Sure, and I also think that even the casual fan – Here's my other here's my other thing with the Spurs and why people like them. I think, you know, they're still sort of personally as inscrutable as ever, you know, certainly they've gotten a little bit more coverage and the way that media works now, um there's just like such a swarm of coverage and reposting and what everything else. But I think like really if you look at the quotes that are coming out of the camp, it's not like they're like suddenly more interesting. It's not like the personalities or what's driving this, I think what's driving this is just a sort of, even at the, I would say like upper levels of casual fans, an understanding of how really good basketball is played. And I think that all the advanced statistics and all the new ways of talking about basketball are really new ways of of talking about why the Spurs are great and explaining them in ways that people can understand a little bit better and really, a lot of what we think of the personality of this team is really just sort of a personification of how they play. And, you know, it's like, oh, you know, Manu must be sort of wacky because he's the one who throws one handed passes. And it's like, well, not really, but we're going to take that because look at how orderly everything else is that we could show you in their minutes played and everything is so regimented. And so we sort of like tease out these personal elements. I think based on very hard analysis of what's actually going on on the court, and then that hard analysis also gives people more touchstones for how to appreciate them. And I think that combined with their style of play and all the threes and, and space and passing it's just an attractive game. I think that's sort of all combined to raise their profile. Plus, you know, losing to the Heat and seeing that heartbreak definitely – you know, raises the level of empathy for guys like Tim Duncan, who I think people have never really thought of as, like, having pain in his life. <laughs> and and then you can see it, and you're like, oh, man, I can get behind this.
1: Yeah, I think those are all really good points. And the other thing you mentioned about, you know, how their basketball is, is fun to watch with passing and shooting and everything. The other thing that might be a lingering factor in it is, how terrible a lot of the national games have been in recent years because of the fact that the teams that in the glamour cities, particularly the Knicks and the Lakers, have just been rough to watch the last couple of years. I mean, even though last year's Lakers team made the playoffs, that team was not fun to watch. It was just rough. And I think that the Spurs, are in that way, are a change of pace in a positive way. So I was thinking back on that Pistons final and things like that. Now the Spurs are one of the teams that not only are they fun to watch, but they've brought a lot of interesting games out of their opponents. That Maverick series was just so much fun. And it's interesting to see them kind of become that guy like people think of it as you know when maybe a certain fighter, in whether you're talking MMA or boxing, that brings out good fights out of their opponents. And I think the Spurs are doing more of that now than they used to do. And that's interesting as well. And I definitely agree with you that the Heat series changed that perception of them as well. And I think in some ways it also crystallized the popular sentiment among the basketball, whether you want to call it the nerds or the hardcore, just in their favor for this coming series as well, because there are so many reasons to root for them and so few to root against them now.
3: Sure. Yeah. No, they're, they're good to root for. Um, Duncan is sort of, you know all the big profiles have been written about him now about like what this would mean for him. We've seen his heart broken um, for the last like five years, really. And uh, I think that here's the thing that's crazy about both these teams, and, and may, well, here's what makes it so very hard to pick uh, is that they're both so good at solving problems, and we really haven't seen either one get. You know, I mean, it seems like, okay, the Pacers should be able to just, like, put Wade in a box and put Paul George on him or something like that and just use his length. And, you know, Wade just did his thing right right around him. They found little ways to get him open. He looked super fresh. He was more energized. The Thunder looked like they backed San Antonio into a corner. And then they sort of figured out, like, oh, no, we're actually just going to double down on this identity with Diao and split up. Duncan and splitter that's basically all we got to do we're going to run away with this thing i think everyone knows kind of what their weaknesses are right like the spurs you can just sort of overwhelm them sometimes with athleticism you can throw a wrench in that machine and then the heat uh you know have some vulnerabilities defensively especially against teams like san antonio that really spread out and shoot threes but we've also seen them be so nimble And how they adjust, that it's just hard to imagine one of them is going to like beat their heads into the wall until they lose. And that's what makes this series so fascinating. And I could totally see it going like last year, where basically there's like one close game and five blowouts because one team solves a problem. The other team kind of has to take a game, practice, figure it out, solves it, and then they blow them out. Um, I I just cannot wait to watch it.
1: Yeah, it's going to be great. And, uh, obviously, you've talked about how this is a hard series to predict. It's totally fine if you don't have one yet, but do you have a prediction as of
3: now? <laughs> you, I mean you can tell if you voice, don't, if just, don't, If you look, don't have I'm one, gonna, that's fine. I'll, I'm not going to be one it. of these guys who's afraid of making predictions. I'm not going to come on your podcast, tease it all up, and then not make a prediction. I may, however, make the opposite prediction in print and elsewhere. Um, I'm going to go uh, – Spurs in seven. Oh god, I hate it even saying it. That's what I'm gonna go I, I, for. I'll flip I'll flip later. Yeah, I, I've been w
1: I have been I have not I haven't given mine in anybody else's, but this will be the first one that I have it on. I'm I, right now I'm saying heat in six, but I have no comfortability with it. I mean it's no, just stay
3: with it. Here's the thing it, this is this is what's important about predictions. Is no one remembers bad predictions. And no one remembers good safe predictions. So just always make the crazy prediction and then gloat like hell. I think that is the key in this game is don't expect anybody to be reasonable or to be tallying up your wins and losses. You just want to be like Westbrook. You want to have the most memorable highlight and then basically claim that everything else was okay also.
1: That's awesome. And on that note, it was great talking with you. This is going to be a lot of fun, and hopefully we'll chat at some point after the season's over.
3: All right, cool, Danny. Thanks.
1: Thanks again to Beckley Mason for taking the time to talk to us. You can read him at Hoopspeak and the New York Times, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Beckley Mason. That's B-E-C-K-L-E-Y-M-A-S-O-N. Also thanks to the other two people who were in Part 1, which are Ian Levy of Hickory High, 538, and Hardwood Proxism, and Jack Winter of Hardwood Proxism. For those of you who have not listened yet, please listen to Part 2. It's Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders and Sean Strani of Real GM. One of the things that was a lot of fun for me with doing this is that after I. All the conversations happened within about two days. It was actually closer to 24 hours with everybody. And what was really satisfying about it was there are so many nuances to this series that I found myself asking everybody the same questions and getting completely different answers. Because I eventually. My, my original thought actually was that I wanted to. Have the conversations go in different directions. When I got the response of having five people who wanted to do it, I knew that it was going to be hard to not tread the same ground. And what I found was that everybody had their own avenues with this, and that the only reason that it ended up going back on repeated themes was because of me, because I think of it in certain ways. And everybody has their own things. And as much fun as it is to talk about it, and hopefully you had half as much fun listening to this as I had recording it with everybody, it's going to be so much more fun to actually watch it, and one of the great things about sports is that we can talk about it all day long, but nothing we can do is ever better than watching it and experiencing it and, and everything else, and no matter what happens, and I think this really came through with Beckley and with Jack, is that no matter what happens, this is something that will have a resonance, and as I said with Jack, you know, we're not going to, we might not see a series like this for a while. I, I hope we do. I hope that we see one exactly like 2013, and I hope we see another one like that in 2015, but These teams are special, and if I could impart one piece of wisdom, advice, whatever you want to call it, to to listeners, it's that enjoy it while it lasts, because we could be back to the less entertaining finals, because as great as the, if you want to credit to the analytics movement, if you want to credit to having good teams that have good coaches, whatever you want to do, we're in a very special moment right now, and you might as well appreciate it, because you never know when it's going to be gone. So thank you so much. If you have any insight, anything, I have a couple other big pieces coming out through The Eliminated and everything else. I actually have two cuts of The Eliminated recorded, one with Amin Vafa and Colin Kazmarak, and then another one on the Philadelphia 76ers with Eric Bodner. Those are both going to come out in the next couple days. I had to get the finals preview out earlier, but those are recorded, just need to be edited and put out there. So if you have any other stuff, and I really appreciated the huge Twitter response I got. For suggestions for the Sixers, the Bucks, and the Magic. The Bucks and Magic's Magic ones will be coming very quickly. It's just it's a lot of material thankfully to get through and I'm very happy to have that problem. So that'll be coming and if you will have anything more you can email me at daniel.larue at realgm.com or you can send me something on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Danny, D-A-N-N-Y, LaRue, L-E-R-O-U-X. I respond to almost everything that I get. And I read everything that I get. So you can send me stuff and it leads to a better product. I feel like it's a very important part of this process. We're more than six months in and I feel like the submission and by listeners has been a major part in any success that we have had beyond the excellent guests that we've had. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Hey, Greensburg, your Walmart at 2200 Green Gate Center Circle has completely transformed to make shopping easier than ever. Stop by today and check out their amazing in-store upgrades with improvements to areas like produce, cosmetics, home and more. Plus, you'll still find low prices on groceries and other items and a full service pharmacy for all your prescription and over-the-counter medication needs. All at your newly remodeled Walmart at 2200 Green Gate Center Circle in Greensburg. Save money, live better. Walmart.